turn, if you will, this morning to Galatians chapter 6. We're going to put aside Matthew. Our next passage is Jesus and his disciples coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. They're all confused about what about Elijah. And uh, we're coming to the Lord's Supper this morning. I said, we're going to do something other than that. So um, Galatians 6, we'll look at the first five verses. This morning we come to the Lord's table, and this is uh, a really glorious part of our worship. For here, more than anywhere else, we celebrate God's grace to us. For that grace to us is embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ being crucified for us. His body hanging on a cross, his blood running out onto the dust of the ground. It's that grace which we celebrate as we eat the bread and drink the wine. It's that sacrifice of Jesus by which we're forgiven and made right from God, with God and all of his blessings. Everything we know of him flows from that. But as we ask so often as we study the scriptures, so what? What difference does it make? Well, that's where our text takes us this morning. Here God calls us, speaks to us about the so what, the differences that it makes that God has been gracious to us. Here God calls us to practice that grace in our lives and to extend that grace to others as it was given to us. That's kind of where this is going this morning. Let me read the text. Galatians chapter 6. Verses 1 to 5. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to someone else. For each one should carry his own load. There seem to be two major truths here, and I'm going to talk about the second one first, and then we'll come back to verse 1, which is the first one. So the first point, the second part of this text, is this. Grace changes the way we live. God's grace coming to us changes the way we live. When we think about God's grace in our life, we very often think about our status changes. We used to be guilty, now we're forgiven. We used to be alienated from God, now we're, we're reconciled to God. We used to be outsiders, now we're the children of God. Our status is changed by God's grace. But God's grace doesn't just change our status. God's grace changes how we live. Our text points out a couple of ways in which that's true. First, uh, first one is that our grace makes us humble. It reminds us that we're no better than anyone else. God's grace, work of grace in us begins by causing us to see the depth of our sinful depravity. For if we do not consider ourselves hopelessly lost, defiled, sinful, unacceptable to a holy God, we will sense no need of a Savior. We sense no need of a substitute to, to, to atone for us and make us right with God in a way that we never could do for ourselves. But when we see ourselves as God sees us, we're humbled. All boasting is gone. For we realize we're no better than anyone else. 
The Apostle Paul made a point of this really often. Some examples, Ephesians 2 verse 9, is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one will boast. Romans 3.27, after speaking about Jesus atoning for our sins, we read, where then is boasting? It's excluded. That's where. And we read again in Romans 12.3, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but rather think of yourself with, job, with sober judgment. Indeed, 1 Timothy 1, Paul applied, makes it very personal. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. So here in verse 3, we hear this call to humility in no uncertain terms. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Grace changes how we live. It humbles us. It reminds us we're no better than anyone else. Grace also changes us in another way. It changes us by making us responsible for ourselves. That's the challenge laid before us here in verse 4 and 5. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without, without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Now, pride is a, a sinful thing almost every time that it's mentioned in the Bible. But here in verse 4, pride is actually encouraged. How could that be? What's going on here? Well, someone once explained it to me. Like this, I always found this helpful. He says there are two kinds of pride. There's pride which is the opposite of humility. That pride is sinful. That's terrible. But there's also a pride that's the opposite of shame. And that pride is good. For it bears testimony of one's humble faithfulness before God in regard to the responsibilities God has given him. So here in these verses, God is not giving us permission to be prideful in a sinful way. He's calling us to be responsible for ourselves so that we're not ashamed when we stand before the Lord. God's grace changes us, producing a pride of accomplishment. Not pride of being better, better than someone else, but pride in work well done. I would suggest that this change which grace brings is often lacking among us. There are lots of Christians who just don't take responsibility for themselves very much. Grace has not made them responsible. I remember very vividly way back in the dark ages when I was in college, there were some students who sat down in the snack shop where most of us seldom had time to go. And they sat there killing time while most of us realized we owed an enormous school bill that we could hardly pay. But rather than getting a job like the rest of us did, they piously said, well, I'm just trusting the Lord to provide which actually means I'm hoping someone else will pay my bill. No. 
Grace makes us responsible to pay our own bills. <laughs> makes us responsible for ourselves. We read an example of this in Ephesians 4, verse 28. He who has been stealing, this is before you're a Christian, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Doing something useful with his hands so that he may have something to share with those. Indeed, that's the kind of change that God's grace brings into our lives. I think we can better grasp this wonderful balance between these two things, between being humble about yourself and being responsible for yourself so that you can take pride in your accomplishment. We can, we can understand how those go together if we listen to the Apostle Paul explain the effects of God's grace on him. We read this in 1 Corinthians 15. He wrote, I am the least of the apostles, I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted Christ's church. In other words, God's grace had humbled him. The great apostle Paul knew he was no better than anyone. But then he continued. But by God's grace, I am what I am. And his grace to me has not been without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. In other words, he also understood that grace made him diligent. That grace made him more self-reliant. That grace made him responsible for himself before God. In both these profound ways, God's grace changes how we live. It's not just producing a change in status. It's producing a different life. And if it's not producing those changes in you, you might take note and examine whether you really know Christ in this life-changing way. Which brings us to our second point. And this is the first truth, which is now the second point. It's found in verses 1 and 2. Let me read those again. Brother, someone's caught in a sin. You who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you may be tempted. Carry each other's burden, and this way you will fulfill the love of Christ. This is the second point. Grace not only changes how we live. Grace calls us to restore the fallen. Grace calls us to restore the fallen. Let me just say at the outset, none of us are very good at this. When someone falls, when someone has some moral lapse, we tend to make that failure the essence of his or her identity. And so once someone is so tagged, we end up rejoicing rather than mourning when they move on out of our lives because we don't have to deal with it. We feel justified in condemning them for all kinds of other things because, well, after all, we know what kind of person they are. And we forever sit them on the bench in regard to our church life. They are considered unclean, forever unfit. I praise God that Wiser Lake Chapel is not that way like many churches, but we have our things to learn too. How about Grace calls us to restore the fallen. Let me point out some things about this. First note that restoration is God's plan. 
restoration. There are lots of churches who want to diligently address the sin of the fallen, and that's good up to a point. But when the focus is on condemning the sin rather than restoring the sinner, things get really ugly. For the way we tend to deal with sin is to punish it. And so church discipline, when attempted, is often punitive. We suspend a brother or sister from the Lord's Supper. We cut them off from the fellowship of the body. We strip them of all their responsibilities and we expect them to forever live a joyless, remorse-filled life. They deserve it. But what about the gospel? My Bible says Jesus paid for our sin. How dare we ask somebody to take the punishment for sin again? According to my Bible, when Jesus forgives, it's forgiven. He lifts the fallen out of their misery and fills their hearts with joy. As for responsibilities, the Bible is full of people who eventually were restored and served with distinction. Think about it. Moses was a murderer. David was an adulterer who murdered to cover up his adultery. Paul was a blasphemer and a persecutor of Christ's church. We first find him standing there while they're stoning Stephen to death. I'm not denying that recovery takes time. Just like major injuries often require surgery, which in turn often requires long, extensive, painful therapy. We expect restoration to take time. And that's what we find. So Moses, after he killed the Egyptian, fled from Egypt. He spent a lot of years tending sheep before God tagged him and said, I've got different shepherding for you. Did you want to lead my people out of Egypt? Paul was radically converted and God called him to serve him. But then he kind of disappeared. We don't know what he did. He did some kind of obscure ministry as he grew. He, it was 14 years before he appears as the great apostle, the, the apostle to the Gentiles. Restoration doesn't happen overnight, but neither does God set those he, restore, he restores on the bench forever. No, he doesn't. Well, make no mistake. Church discipline has its place. It's, a, it's biblical. But what's it for? It's intended to bring someone to repentance. To, to, to put the pressure on, to tighten the screws on someone until he or she admits and abandons their sin. But when sin is confessed and repented of, that person is forgiven. There's no guilt to be worked off. There's no punishment to be endured. There is only the rejoicing of the angels in heaven and the saints on the earth that the lost has been found and reclaimed and forgiven. And then the long, hard work of rehabilitation begin. But grace calls us to restore. Restore. Not punish. Not bench. Restore 
the fallen. There's another thing to note here. True restoration is the work of God's spirit. We easily fall into the trap of thinking that we have to fix things. We have to change people. So when someone has a problem, we begin to amass all of our powers, the, the power of counseling, the power of peer pressure that we can bring, the power of public humiliation, the power of guilt, the power of our best persuasive skills. But changing someone's heart has to be the work of the Spirit of God. We see that right here in our text. Note that the people involved ought to be the spiritual ones. That does not mean people who have a, a fascination with spiritism or the latest spirit, spirituality fad. No, this means those people who show evidence that the Holy Spirit indwells them and that they're walking in the Spirit in obedience to Christ. Actually, verse 1 says it again when it says, Restore him gently. What it literally says is in a spirit of gentleness. That is not describing a mood that someone has. That's the Hebrew way of saying the gentle spirit. What is needed in dealing with the fallen is the work of God's gentle spirit who produces in us gentleness among other things. For you see, the one from whom Restoration must come is none other than the God who was offended. Apart from his work of reconciliation, we have no power, we have no authority to work reconciliation, to do anything. But because God, working through Christ Jesus, came into the world to reconcile us to himself, not counting our sins against us, remember, and has given us his Holy Spirit who is conforming us to Christ, God's grace now calls us who have been reclaimed to restore others. Finally, note that this work of restoration involves what I call a paradox of burden-bearing. A paradox of burden-bearing. We saw a few moments ago that God holds each of us responsible for our lives, so verse 5 says, each one should carry his own load. Doesn't that resonate with you? Each one carry his own load. Sounds very American. But we're part of Christ's body. We cannot ignore the burden of others. For if one part of the body hurts, the body hurts. Therefore, the whole body inevitably feels the burden of the broken and fallen member. So verse 2 says, carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. That's the paradox of burden-bearing. So that what God has given to each of us, he has given to us for the sake of his body. In his lectures on Galatians, Martin Luther, the great reformer, unpacked this, bearing one another's burdens. Very pointedly, this, this quote is a little lengthy, and it's, you have to think your way through what he's saying, but listen carefully as I read. This is Martin Luther. He says, if there is anything in us, it's not our own. 
It's a gift of God. But if it is a gift of God, then I must serve others with it, not just myself. Thus, my learning is not my own. It belongs to the unlearned. And it's the debt I owe them. My chastity is not my own, Luther says. It belongs to those who commit sins of the flesh. And I am obligated to serve them through it by offering it to God for them, by sustaining and excusing them, and thus with my respectability, veiling their shame before God and man. Luther goes on, thus my wisdom belongs to the foolish, my power to the oppressed, my wealth belongs to the poor, my righteousness to the sinners. It is with all these qualities qualities that we must stand before God and intervene on behalf of those who do not have them as though clothed with someone else's garment. And even before men, we must with the same love render them service against their detractors and those who are violent to them. For this is what Christ did for us. You see, it's not enough for us to just dutifully bear our own burdens. God calls us to bear the burdens of his broken and fallen ones. As Philip Ryken put it, every believer is called to be one of God's bellhops, always ready to pick up someone else's luggage. Grace calls us to restore the fallen. So it's two simple truths to take home today. First, grace changes how we live, makes us humble, makes us responsible for ourselves before God. And secondly, grace calls us to restore the fallen. The emphasis is on restoration. The restoration must be God's doing, must be by his Holy Spirit. And God's plan involves the paradox of burden bearing. years of war in Iraq and Afghanistan, our nation now faces a great challenge. For many of those young people that we sent off to war have returned broken and maimed, missing limbs, and tortured inside. Perhaps they were wounded because of their own carelessness some bad decision made in the heat of the battle. Doesn't matter, ultimately, was because of the enemy that they fought. Thank God for those who labored to restore those fallen men and women. Less visible and a much less concern to everyone are those servants of Christ who have fallen while serving him. It is astonishing that the church is so often more concerned to condemn than to heal 
the wounded soldiers of Christ. It's sometimes been noted with the pathetic irony that only Christians kill their own wounded. So I want to close with the lyrics of a song that was sung several years ago by Steve Green. It's a call for us, the Church of Jesus Christ, to do what our text commands, to restore those fallen, broken servants of God. It goes like this. See all the wounded. Hear all their desperate cries for help, pleading for shelter and for peace. Our comrades are suffering. Come, let us meet them at their need. Don't let a wounded soldier die. Obeying their orders, they fought on the front lines for our king. Capturing the enemy's strongholds. But weakened from battle, Satan crept in to steal their lives. Don't let a wounded soldier die. Come, let's pour the oil. Come, let us bind the hurt. Let's cover them with a blanket of his love. Come, let us break the bread. Come, let us give them rest. Let's minister healing to them. Let's minister healing to them. Don't let another wounded soldier Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that when we have fallen flat on our face, that when we persisted in our sin, though we knew you better, that you've not abandoned us. We thank you that you've brought us to repentance and to trust you again. You restored our souls and lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So help us to be that way too. As we labor, Lord, to live out the grace that you've given us in practical ways, maybe be quick to do that other more difficult thing to restore those who are broken. Father, we don't claim we know how to do that. We don't claim we do it well. But you've done it for us, and we ask that you would help us to do it for one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.